go look it up. Shooting an apple off one's son's head. Uh, because there's a plethora of legends predating William Tell about that exact thing. So, if the William Tell apple blasting story was fake, why was it put in the book to begin with? Hello, and welcome to We Talk About Dead People. Whoa, I think my levels might be a little high there. Is that too hot? Can you hear me? Yes, I'm, I'm sure you can. We're going to try something interesting today. And it's the first time I've done this, and I can't... I actually just had the idea about, oh, I don't know, five seconds ago to give this a shot. I really felt like recording something. And I was trying to think, I was trying to come up with an excuse to get behind the mic and just put something out there. And I don't think I need an excuse because I, I have the perfect idea, which is probably you'll see from the title of the episode, William Tell. <laughs> so this is a legendary, this is a legendary show, mainly because it's the one that broke my brain. Um, when... When the whole things started happening last year, I was at this weird spot where I was beginning to look at history and go, heh, there's more going on here than I thought. Because, you know, it's one thing to know the stories. It's another thing to, to, to uh, you know, have read the books and to know all the stuff. And it's another thing to look at history as a concept and be confronted with something that is just so outlandish as the William Tell story. Um... And, well, to try and square that with your typical understanding of a historical story. And I am getting a text. I wonder who it's from. Oh, look, it's from Neil. <laughs> he wants me to watch the new Suicide Squad. Well, sorry, Neil. I don't watch movies. <laughs> I'm basically Amish at this point. Anyway, so, <laughs> yes, this is my first time doing a one-man actual presentation. But I, I hope it's going to be fun. I think it's going to be interesting. Um... And maybe there will be more if this works out. But anyway, so here's what I was thinking. We'll just go through the script and I'll critique it as we go. It's been a while since I actually did this research. Uh, but it, it's just such an interesting story because it, it, well, we'll have to work through my thought process as we work through this script. Um, so I think we should just, we should just go for it. So here's, here's the script. Let's just consider this like a, a behind-the-scenes slash how it's made slash how Aaron thinks while he's researching for these. Uh, let's just think of it like that. This is this is all an experiment, so let's just have some fun. So I'll just start the show. Here we go. Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. And of course, George isn't here, so he'd probably say something like, Howdy, howdy, or hello, or something. He was never as... Um, wild as James with the introductions. So then I'd go on and say, we hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and, well, just me this time, will do my amateur's best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now dead person, or is he, and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're going to try anyway. So, Aaron, who do we have this week? And then, uh, well, George isn't here. I'm just going to read the lines. Well, I'm not going to hype it for you, Aaron. We already tried this once, and it went about as badly as an episode can go. And then I have a line. Yes, we have recorded this once before, and it was a disaster, wasn't it, George? 
But I have done the necessary rewrites and retooling to create something far better. It's, that's kind of a lie. I mean, I did do rewriting and retooling, but there was nothing that could save this one. Again, it's the one that broke my brain. Um, and basically, I mean, it led to the interview with Howdy McCoskey. <laughs> um, and of course, I have, uh, George in this not script says, Well, we can only hope it took because last time it was an absolute disaster. Um, yeah, I'm just going to skip these lines. This is stupid. It's it's dumb to just try to act this out. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Podcasts aren't supposed to be completed masterworks, which, yes, that's true, especially in this case. And then we go down to the history lab, and you want to hear the trailer? I'll do the trailer for you. This is fun. In a world where it's getting harder to believe anything is real, and everything in the mainstream is engineered to make you want to give up and kill yourself, one podcast stood up and said, No. Heroes from time immemorial, forgotten legends and stories that help make sense of the world and teach us what it means to s Man. And teach us what it means when we say, Time is a flat circle. Yeah, as you can see, I was going through some serious changes in, in my understanding of, of uh, everything when I wrote this. Yes. All right, and so the question we had when we got off the elevator, so George, if there was one person you would never want to catch listening to this podcast, uh, who would you pick and what episode would you not want them to listen to? Well, since George isn't here, I'll answer that question. If there was one person I would never want to catch listening to this podcast, I used to say my mother, <laughs> but she's been listening to it recently, and she's like, by, by golly, this is, this is a fun show, especially that interview with that Howdy McCoskey chap, and she doesn't actually sound like that. So, and Mom, if you're listening to this, it's just a joke. Um, yeah, no, I, I don't think I'd want to ever catch my grandma listening to this, um, because that would mean, um, she's listening from beyond the grave, which actually could be, which grandma, I'm sorry, there's over 120 something episodes of this show and they're all vulgar. Um, sorry, I'm such a disappointment. So uh, I guess since George isn't here, I'll, I could answer for him, but I'm not going to do that because he'll be back soon, I'm sure. We've got to finish Adrian Carton de Virt, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> All right, so computer, please... Oh, man, I was peeking there. I need to turn down my, my levels again a little bit. Computer, please bring up William Tell. Blah, 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 blah. Here's a picture. Uh, and the picture I picked is literally a statue of William Tell in front of a painting or a tapestry, something that looks like, um, I don't know, your, your typical alpine countryside. You know, there's these houses that are all pretty and things. And William Tell's standing there with his legendary crossbow and his leather cap and massive beard, tunic, everything. He's got legs that are, I mean, they look like entire hams for legs. Uh, and he's, of course, walking with his son, who he did not kill. You all know the story. William Tell's shooting the apple off his son's head. Um, his son's just fine, and uh, everyone looks fine. It's it's good. It's a it's a very nice picture. All right, so that means we're about to move into the script proper, and I may have to pause this recording uh, later on because I've got some chickens to put in. Um, I am now OTG, and for, for you noobs out there, that's off the grid, and... The, tru the truth is I am definitely, definitely not off-grid, but uh, <laughs> it's not for lack of trying. <laughs> uh, you probably think I'm crazy. You will think I'm crazy by the end of this episode. 
All right, so we'll just go right into it. Remember, no script. I'm definitely not reading this out of Google Doc. And I'm also not drinking a lukewarm berry Soleil sparkling water beverage. It's, it's berry-flavored sparkling water beverage with other natural flavors. It's calorie-free. It's sweetener-free. It's caffeine-free. I did not get paid for that ad, and uh, it's not even that good of a drink, so there you go. At long last, we are finally ready to release the absolute nightmare that is the long-foretold William Tell episode. I wrote a draft of this script, uh, I'm sorry, this not script last year, attempting to simultaneously tell a hilarious and educational story and solve the mysteries of the universe all at once. And as you all know, it did not go well. The reason I was even talking about William Tell to begin with was that I was doing these behind-the-famous-literary-icon-style episode. Uh, at the time, we had covered the clown who inspired the Joker character, the demon who inspired the Count of Monte Cristo, and the survivalist who inspired Robinson Crusoe. There may have been others, but it's been so long, I kind of forgot. So yeah, there was this stage where I was like, how can I best ride the wave of the mainstream to get people to listen to my dumb podcast? And it didn't work. Nobody listened to the Joker episode, which was... It wasn't even that good. I don't... I can barely blame them. And it was so phoned in. Anyway, man, it came out around the same time as that... That uh, Joker film, which I, I actually don't have much of an opinion on. I saw it in his last movie... One of the last movies I saw in a theater. Um, and I think I ate a burger. And I went with a bunch of friends, and it was it was a really, really good time. But we were all kind of, like, looking over our shoulders. Like, we know this is, like, some kind of programming to, like... You know, well, yeah, let's let's not let's not get carried away here. William Tell is actually a different kind of story. I thought it was going to be all cute, and I would just be like, "Oh, well, he didn't actually shoot an apple off a kid's head. He actually shot a kid off an apple's head and just flipped the whole thing upside down." But the amount of absolute wizardry attached to this story overwhelmed my pebble-sized little brain and crashed my system for a while, uh, almost literally. In fact, you know what? This is not an exaggeration because everyone knows that the content started tailing off, um, tapering off, I should say, when I hit this because my entire paradigm of thinking about history just shifted because it, it absolutely, well, I'll leave that to the side. The tale of William Tell is, from what I can tell, <laughs> a likely completely true story and an absolute myth all rolled into one. But it's way weirder than the just, oh, the myth romanticized the truth. That's true, but it also brings up a lot of questions. Why are true stories turned into myths? How can we discover what's real in a true story that has been mythologized? Well, I have no answers, but I sure have some ideas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can tell where I've, where I've clipped in to, to try and fix this flaming pirate ship of horror. To begin, it should be said that characters in well-told stories, whether they are real or not, can resonate with us, guide us, and teach us about our reality. When they face something way we've faced before in our own lives, the story does what's called ringing true, even if we haven't faced the same exact literal problems. For example, I don't have to have literally lived on an island full of goats and feral cats to feel connected to Alexander Selkirk's story. I don't have to literally go on an insane revenge spree like Pierre Picot to know what it feels like to indulge in wrath. Stories are best understood as illustrations of various truths about life. And for them to be ma maximally effective, they have to say a lot, say it all well, and say it very clearly. 
History, the greatest story of all, has sloppier writing and messier characters than Hollywood could ever churn out, uh, even now, as they appear to be trying to make the worst movies it's possible to make. And if you haven't caught on to that, um, you will soon, because they're only going to get worse. <laughs> so legendary figures, uh, historical figures like William Tell, are often distillations of multiple people or events. That is an, This is a necessary process, because real history, as it's called, is a blended-up, melted-down, refined, altered, like, hodgepodge. And the further Father Time removes us from a given historical period, our collective memory becomes more and more selective. We forget things, leave things out because they're embarrassing. You know how it is. You know, you go on that bad, that camping trip and everything's great except for the time you ate that random berry in the forest and were sick for an afternoon. We, uh, we, we, for, we leave the pain behind and remember the funny story. And a good example of, of you know, his, historical, like, mythologization is, you know, looking at a tapestry of, you know, Jesus that was made in the Middle Ages and, like, Jesus and his disciples all look like people from the Middle Ages because they had no other real reference point, right? Uh, and you'll see, you know, movies that make the 1850s look like the 1890s or they get them all mixed up or, like, they've, you know, got a model of car that, that existed 10 years after the movie was supposedly set and that sort of thing. It's like, these are conveniences. We use the best we can to sort of produce an image of the past that, you know, we feel or at least... Um, believe is the most accurate. But there are some things that are not so easy to erase, such as acts of incredible honor, big disasters, wars, and more. These things are often naturally immortalized. History turns to legend, legend to myth. I am now Galadriel, but you get the point. We've said it on here before, or I've said it on here before, <laughs> but mythos and legends are just as important as history. It's one of the first things George and I actually even talked about. We, I had him on to talk about the importance of myth and what myth and story does to a culture. It, it literally shapes history and the future. Um, the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves and, say, where we live change how we treat our world. And that's not so hard to understand. If you go out feeling like, you know, say you're a paranoid schizophrenic and you believe everybody around you is actually a robot that's being piloted by an alien bird... It's going to change how you treat the people around you, and as a result, they're going to treat you differently, and the whole town, town's going to kind of respond to that as you go around with your little delusion, even if it's not a delusion, there really are alien birds piloting robots, and those are your neighbors and friends and things. Uh, either way, the fact that you believe it, um, is, uh, it has an effect on the world that's not small. There's a, I can't remember if it was, which philosopher it was that talked about the egregore, which is a concept that it doesn't matter if a thing is real or not, or not, if enough people believe it, it might as well be, right? So, for example, we all, the law is a great example of this. We all believe that if you steal something, you're breaking the law. And if you're breaking the law, a, uh, a cop is going to materialize out of the ether and arrest your ass. And that's pretty much true, right? That's pretty much true, uh. You know, if you get caught stealing, you're going to, somebody's probably going to call the police on you. And the belief is sort of based on reality. But if you got away with stealing, like you were a really good thief and got that payday bar into your back pocket real on the sly and nobody saw you doing it. And you got to walk out of the jewel and, and munch on that thing in the parking lot and nobody was the wiser. Um, the egregore of the law 
has proven to have a hole, which means that it's just that. It's a belief that is sometimes right. Not in all cases. Sometimes it's right. Uh, the, the law is an, always an excellent example. It's sort of like how, you know, um, there's laws about tags and expirations on license plates and in various states and things, and people go over them all the time and without getting any problems. And sometimes there's a grace period, sometimes not. But, you know, it's like, you know, the popular meme of, you know, you break 20 laws before breakfast, um, you know, because there's just so many laws and, uh, and um, you know, like little uh, policies and towns and things like that. Like, you know, you, you break a lot of the law before breakfast without even realizing it. So a myth is something like a law in that sense. If a culture believes a myth, like, you know, a great example of a myth is the World War II mythos, right? It might be the one that's, that's <laughs> I mean, to be completely brutally honest, it's one that's going to fade fast and hard, where America was like the good guy and everything that, uh, everything that we fought for was freedom. And, you know, the, these these are... This is, you know, I mean, whatever aspect you want to go go at World War II about, like, we did drop two nukes on on Japan. <laughs> or, or, you know, we at least firebombed um, a whole bunch of villages if you don't even want to go for the whole nuclear thing. Like, the we did do some terrifying things. I mean, so did Japan, obviously, and so did China, and so did all these countries. But... The point is, like, the Saving Private Ryan, brother, Band of Brothers, Call of Duty version of history, World War II, it's going, it's going the way of the dodo, and it's going fast. Um, and that's not, is that a bad thing? I really, I really couldn't say. But it is exactly, it is exactly what a modern myth-making uh, process would look like, the mythologization of soldiers in World War II. In fact, now that I'm on this rant, uh, you're going to you just keep seeing the deconstruction of the World War II soldier now. Um, they, for example, like oh, in, in all the propaganda from World War II, every soldier had a helmet or a cap, and they carried you know a rifle and they looked all clean and they had their you know pants tucked into their boots and yada yada yada. Everything looked good, and then Saving Private Ryan rolls around and you know you see like real dirt and people you know exchanging equipment and they lo do lose their helmets and there's that famous scene where the guy throws his helmet at the German uh, the German soldier at the end of the movie um, and you know more and more frequently you see these disillusioned versions of you know your G.I. Joe character um, you know look no further than uh, you know the little plastic army army men that I played with when I grew up everybody had a helmet and their pants were tucked in or shirts were tucked into their pants. <laughs> you know, uh, the deconstruction of the World War II narrative is is at play. I mean, look at Battlefield, uh, the new Battlefields, where they've got, you know, um, where you can super deck out your character and change how he looks. You know, the uniform G.I. Joe look is a myth. That's, that's what it is. It might have been real at one point, you know, when everything was uniform, but it's a myth at this point that's been deconstructed, which is what happens to myths after a certain period of time. They get deconstructed to the point where people are like, well, did it ever even happen? And that brings us to William Tell again. William Tell is what's called a folk hero. 
And folk heroes embody something that no single historical figure can embody. A folk hero is more than a man, but less than a god in a manner of speaking. He's an icon, or she's an icon, or whatever, you know, like... Legendary folks, folk heroes actually have an ability to affect real historical change, just as real heroes do. Uh, a good example of this is, of course, the Horst Vessel story. Which, you know, that's touchy That's touchy territory, but everybody who studies a little history has to know about Horst Vessel. And I'm probably even pronouncing it wrong. But because he's a German, I pronounce all the W's like V's. I think that's how they do it in the movies, at least. So I'm going to say, is the Horst Vessel lead? Right. You pro maybe you've never heard this story, but there, and, and I put this in here without notes because I did know this better back when I was researching. Uh, the horse, horse vessel lead was the story of a, of a young national socialist who was murdered by some communists during the, uh, the troubling times, I believe, prior to World War II. And he was just a dude who, you know, kind of got along and did his thing being a national socialist and all the rest. And I believe he was shot in his home. I'm not sure exactly what it was, and please forgive me. You can look into it. You can get the details for yourself. But the point is, Joseph Goebbels went and got this story and made a whole song about it called The Horse Vessel Lead. And that became this this big, um, I don't know how you'd explain it. It became a huge propaganda piece. And people were like, remember Horse Vessel? And I think if you think a little bit about our modern day, there might be a couple of people in the last couple of years who got this treatment. Something happened to them that was that could be construed as bad or at least dramatized as bad. And believe me, there's more than one in the last year. Like we should play a bingo game or something where you try to pick all the ones that at least was they attempted to mythologize. Um, and uh, yeah, it's ugly when you start talking about the contemporary because it it just gets gross because it's sort of like i don't know it's it's like watching a cow give birth it's kind of weird but the cow's all right it's just the whole process is this is getting weird all right so ladies and gentlemen give it up for the man the myth the meme william tell here's a good example of again a folk hero who may have never really exi existed but for all intents and purposes all intents and purposes might as well have um he's a literal proto meme but how can I call this priceless Swiss icon a meme and feel no shame? Well, we'll get into that a little bit today. And today you will learn that meme magic is actually not only real, but perhaps more powerful than we would like to admit. Um, yeah. <laughs> so let's begin with a little context, of course. Let's talk about Switzerland for a moment. Until 1798, Switzerland didn't exist, which is to say it was a territory but not a nation. It was land, and it was the people who lived on the land. There were no rigid borders delineating a nation called Switzerland. I like to emphasize this point because it's hard for us who have only known a world of nations to really understand this a lot of time. It, Switzerland, the Swiss, used to just be a bunch of tribes composed of different families and peoples with diverse traditions and cultures. You know, they, they were there was variety, just sort of like, you know, my family really likes jet skis. Well, my family really likes hunting. Well, my family watches Netflix all day and everybody's bored with us. <laughs> that's just a little... That's, don't take that too seriously. So these tribes often fought with each other and sometimes made alliances based on their common interests. Um, and you might see that, like, even me making fun of the Netflix people, like, that might be a, you know, a different... A tribal difference in Switzerland, that sort of thing. And any, any you know, coagulating culture you're going to have elements that don't get along. But you all have common interests, such as y'all got to eat, 
Y'all got to have security. Y'all got to get some, you know, get some water up in that bitch. You know what I mean? Um, and these are things that turn into like monarchies and empires eventually. Um, we all know how this works. We live in a society, but many of us are so used to living in the empire uh, that we can't even imagine a time when uh, hierarchical structures would naturally arise. We're so used to the sort of like the statist way of like getting in there and making sure all the people get along and, you know, taking censuses and, you know, making sure that, you know, getting public opinion, you know, using statistics and data and that sort of thing. That's all, that's all extra, right? Back in the day, it's like, do you have a deer? Yes, I will give you this shiny rock for that leg of deer. And people were like, we have an agreement. And then they'd shake hands and maybe next year they'd get in a war over, you know, who had more shiny rocks. Uh, that is kind of what we do now anyway, isn't it? So anyway, just before the beginning of the 1300s, key Swiss territories had achieved what was called Reichsfreiheit. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but come on, I'm an American. Reichsfreiheit meant that they were under direct control of the Holy Roman Empire. So the, 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 the Swiss territories have joined with an empire. And at this time, it was, you know, not early, but the Rome, Holy Roman Empire wasn't, you know, like a bad deal. Reichsfreiheit was a desirable status for a lot of small kingdoms because it guaranteed support from a larger, wealthier power. It's sort of like uh, franchising your crappy taco restaurant into a Taco Bell, right? You're, you're now a part of a larger chain. You get support, um, more money. You know, the, the trade-off is you lose some of your, you know, your originality. You have to use their recipes and wear their uniforms and that sort of thing. But, you know, if say you're in a tight spot and you really need that franchise, well, you do it. Um, so the trade-off for Reichsfreiheit in Switzerland... Um, it basically, the trade-off was that uh, they had to allow passage through the Alps, their, um, you know, their ancestral homeland, which, uh, w you know, to, the Alps were a natural, like, they were a natural barrier to prevent, you know, invasion and that sort of thing. But it also was a barrier that prevented trade between places where that had to pass through or around or whatever through the Alps. Um, and the people living in these regions were known as the Waldstaaten. Um, and they were heavily taxed to support war efforts around the empire. As we know, heavy taxes, Reichsfreiheit or no, build resentment against the guys in charge. Hey, this, this was a great deal, and now you're keeping all of my profits. And it's like, that's Taco Bell, baby. <laughs> I hope this experiment's working out. Now, you would think that the people who were getting pissed off about the heavy taxes would be like, the Holy Roman Empire is at fault. But no, that's not how people typically operate. They don't resent the empire itself. They typically resent the tax collector first because he's the guy they have to hand their money to. And this is back in the day where, you know, people interfaced by face, right? Or even by letter. But there, were no, there was no, like, video calling. You weren't watching television about how great being part of the, you know, the Holy Roman Reich or whatever. You weren't watching videos about, oh, my God, so proud to be a part of the Holy Roman Empire. You're just like, I guess we're part of the Holy Roman Empire. <laughs> um, but I have to deal with this guy over here who's taking my money, right? And you don't go, oh, the Holy Roman Empire is at fault. It's that guy. He's being really mean about the money. And typically tax collectors can be kind of thuggish, which is why there's a whole section in the Bible about Jesus forgiving a tax collector. And of course, he's a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. So there were little insurgencies and people who were not happy 
Um, but Switzerland was still effectively under the rule of the King of Germany, Rudolf I of Hab the Habsburg dynasty, in the immediate years leading up to the 1300s. But when Rudolf I died in 1291, his son Albert I wasn't the obvious successor to the throne, at least not according to a guy named Adolf of Nassau. Nassau? Nassau. Nass I don't know. Nassau. Adolf of Nassau. Great. So Adolf of Nassau believed that he had a rightful claim to the throne, and so there was a power vacuum and destabilization in Swiss and German lands. Albert I ramped up to deal with Adolf of Nassau, and the result was that the Habsburg rule among the Waldstaaten began to weaken and decentralize. Swiss claims, already divided up into what amounted to tiny kingdoms called cantons, cantons, um, found themselves to be rather vulnerable not only to foreign powers but to local powers. The Swiss cantons were ruled by what were called reeves, uh, or Vogte. Vogte? Vogte. I think it's Vogte, but it looks like Vogte. Um, <laughs> but I think it's, I'm pretty sure it's Vogte. Um, and these guys were basically in charge of their people, and they were supposed to watch out for them. They were sort of like uh, regional managers. Let's put it like that. It's like, you know, regional managers of the Taco Bell Corporation in, in Switzerland. Um, and during this tumult surrounding the German throne, their power increased because as, you know, big, big imperial or kingship power or whatever, um, as it, you know, like when Papa John had his problems, um, Papa John's franchise all kind of suffered a little bit, but everybody below Papa John was suddenly getting a lot more power, right? Doesn't that make, doesn't that make sense when you think about it? Like, as the figurehead starts to decrease, the CEOs and all the rest, or maybe not the CEOs, but the executives and all the rest are like, we've got to do something about Papa, right? So they've got more, um, more power, like legitimate-based power, um, where they can actually do something. Um, because as Papa John declines, there's a power vacuum. So like all people in power, when it comes to screwing over the people for some minor gain, the Reeves just couldn't help themselves. And this is where things begin to get a little dicey. There are three major events listed in what's called the White Book of Sarnen, uh, Sarnen, yes, which, in which the Vokta are reported to have screwed over their people, the Reeves have screwed over their people in these times of political instability. And they did it in a lot of ways, but mostly it was taxation. According to the White Book, which is a Swiss historiograph histor historiographical, more on that later, source, three men from three different cantons all got individually screwed over by their reeves in various ways. One, for example, a, uh, resisted a reeve who was stealing his father's oxen. Another killed a reeve who had tried to rape his wife. And the third was literally banished because he built a house out of stone. Which... Apparently, our, our, um, our Reeve didn't like that. I wonder why. Hmm. Hmm. What's all this housing going up all around America that looks like it's about to be torn down? Hmm. I, I don't know. Hmm. Anyway, so these three men individually fled to the Swedish state of Uri, Yuri, I don't know, where they made a secret pact to take a stand against the Reeves forever. Who were these men? Well, I don't know, but I only care about one. And one of these men was William Tell. And we all know the story of William Tell, something something he shot an apple off his son's head and saved the day, but there are a lot of different versions of the classic William Tell story. In fact, there are dozens of them, maybe hundreds all told. Um, hold for applause. 
So we'll go with the classic version just to get, get on with it. The story goes that in 1307, one of these bad reeves named Albrecht Gessler, Albrecht Gessler, went to Altdorf, William Tell's town. Feeling like it was time to really establish which reeve was in charge here, Gessler went to the main square in Altdorf and raised a pole with his hat on top of it. He then commanded a town he commanded the townsfolk to bow before the hat so he could humiliate them and presumably feel like a god. Um, all the people complied, of course, except for that brave boy, William Tell. This was treason, of course, so William Tell was risking being killed right there. But this is where you have to call, you know, Albrecht Gessler's bluff. He sticks his hat in a pole and says, bow before me, and that's when you have to stand there. And this, this is interesting because this is also an archetype. Um, in the Bible, there's a story... Uh, about um, one of those kings. I think it was Nebuchadnezzar. I'm not exactly sure. I, I haven't read my Bible in a while. Go figure. Um, at least I haven't read that story in a while. But he creates a statue and commands all to bow before it. And everybody from every class bows before this statue. Except for Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And I think Daniel was there. Or was it just Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Either way, they don't bow, so they get thrown in a fire and they're saved by the grace of God and everything's great. And this is one of those situations. William Tell is not kneeling before um, uh, Mr. Albrecht Gessler's lid. <laughs> so Albrecht, uh, let's see here. So yeah, all the people complied. Um, but Albrecht Gessler had heard stories about William Tell and knew not only that he was a proud man, but also one of the best marksmen in all the land. Um, yeah, so this is another thing where... William Tell automatically has power just by the nature of what he is. He's a proud man, something like a patriot, um, and he's also a really good shot. And so Gessler's like, he's got to increase the bluff. So Albrecht looks at William Tell and gives him a gambit. He can either just straight up get executed right there and then, or he can attempt to save his own life by shooping, shooping, shooting an apple off the top of his own son's head but he only gets one shot. And if he misses the apple, he will be killed anyway. And in some versions of the story, the son will be killed too. Or Gessler will, like, kidnap him and raise him as his own or something like that. I mean, there's tons of variations on this story because it's a myth, but also not. We'll get to that. <laughs> so William Tell accepts the challenge and puts his boy downrange with an apple on his head. In many depictions of this event, the boy is facing away from his father, presumably so the kid doesn't feel so terrified watching his own dad uh, aim at him with a crossbow. William Tell draws two bolts and takes careful aim. In some versions of the story, he uses a bow, some it's a crossbow, but in this case, we're going with the bolts. And of course, as the story goes, in one clean shot, William Tell splits the apple on his son's head and wins the gambit. Gessler is impressed, of course, but he has one question. If you only had one go at this, Tell, why did you draw two bolts? To which Tell replies, Habit. Gessler nods. Very good, you are free to go. And assured now that he won't be executed, Tell says, Actually, the second bolt was going to go straight through your neck if I missed. <laughs> so, take that, Albrecht. Of course, Gessler immediately tells, uh, tells, immediately has Tell arrested and taken away to spend the rest of his life in a dungeon. His captors sailed him across Lake Lucerne to his new prison home, but along the way a huge storm broke out, 
The crew was in panic, but they knew William Tell was also a legendary sailor, so they gave him the wheel. Tell that this is the part of the story a lot of people don't really know. <laughs> Tell then steers the ship to land, much to the dismay of his captors, grabs his crossbow, and jumps out, making his cross-country escape with Gessler in hot pursuit. Gessler loses sight of Tell during the chase, um, at which point Tell pops out of the bushes and shoots him. After this event, which may or may not have happened, Tell became a famous local icon. He was a symbol of the people resisting tyranny and putting down a bad, tyrannical actor. This was a huge relief to Swiss folks, who really felt like they couldn't rely on leadership to care for them during the power vacuum situation. And this is something that, again, it happens all the time in real life. Some governor, some mayor, some scandal happens to them, and then what happens? Immediately all the people who were, like, pretending to support him turn. And they go, oh, we really didn't like him the whole time. It's like, well, why didn't you say anything? And they always say, we were too scared to speak up. Yeah, so for a cultural shift to happen, essentially somebody has to die, whether it's a hero or a villain. But either way, death has this way in history and in stories of waking people up to the stakes, right? When, when death is on the line, people very quickly figure out where they're going to stand. And it happens very, very, very quickly. And it's sometimes very ugly. So, as, as the story goes, following the assassination, Tell reconvened with the other two men who had stood up to the Reeves, and together they formed a new pact, but not a secret pact this time. This time they all brought able-bodied men from their own cantons. Cantons? There's my Midwestern. Cantons. Basically to figure out a plan for taking down the rest of the tyrannical Reeves! But the king, because the king wasn't going to do it, right? So he gets all these guys together and he's like, all right, boys, we're not going to kneel to this hat and we're not going to do it for any of them. And you got a crossbow, you got a sword, you got a pitchfork. Let's all band together. We're forming a new thing. And so they make this oath called the Rutlishvor. The Rutlishvor. I don't know if that's how it's pronounced. It looks like Rutlishvor. Shvor. Um, it was named after the valley in which the oath was made. I believe it's just the Rutley Valley. The most famous version of this oath comes from an old play. And I will now read the oath as portrayed in the legend. So this is the true Rutlishvur. And it's uh, also... Well, j just listen to this. <clears throat> we want to be a single people of brethren, never to part in danger nor distress. We want to be free as our fathers were, and rather die than live in slavery. We want to trust in the one highest God and never be afraid of human power. Hmm. That is an oath. And after this oath was made, William Tell and his men mobilized to march on the Reeves. The William Tell story began to circulate among the people and brought hope to many, many homes across what is now Switzerland. Whether or not it actually happened is almost irrelevant. The story itself was powerful enough and enough people believed it that it had a very real effect. That is the power of belief. Now, let's just stop there real quick, um, because that is the point. Uh, that uh, The point at which I realized William Tell didn't have to exist. It was the idea of William Tell that was the power. It was the spirit of William Tell that was the power. I realized while I was researching, I'm like, you know, people across Switzerland and all these cantons, they couldn't have all known personally William Tell. And they couldn't all have known personally 
what had happened in, uh, what was the name of that town? Um, it was literally just up here. Uh, Altdorf. Um, these people just knew it. They just believed it. Never had to see any physical evidence, except they had to hear the story. Um, and this story was key in launching what was known as the Bergenbrook, which was basically a period of open rebellion against the tyrants in the old Swiss Confederacy. It wasn't a rebellion for power. It was just people taking out the trash. Um, they were fed up. They just had enough. Inspired by the story of William Tell, the rebels engaged in something called slighting, which I don't know why they had to call it that, but it was just a way of saying that they completely demolished the castles of the tyrants. All these reeves with their fancy castles couldn't withstand a bunch of people who had heard a story about a guy who shot an apple off his son's head. That's the power of belief. They believed the story, and it gave them the power to demolish castles. So the Bergenbrock saw the destruction of many castles in central Switzerland, and the ousting of many tyrants, and the ruins of these castles are still there today. So did any of this actually happen? Well, yes, we, we do have those ruins, don't we? Well, here's another part where my brain broke, okay? So it's another part where things start to get a little weird, all right? So it was up until the 1960s. It, it, in Switzerland and around the world, it was popularly taken as a historical fact that this happened due to the numerous busted-up castles where tyrants once allegedly lived. But because the 1960s were a psyop designed to destroy everything good about the world, <laughs> a group of what are called demythologizers just sort of decided that this could never have happened. These demythologizers in the 60s, it's a real thing, look it up, looked at these ruined castles and concluded that, no, the Bergenbrock was just a legend. And so they concluded was William Tell. The demythologizers proposed that the castles were gradually abandoned, that people hadn't actually risen up against tyranny, and that nothing ever happens and all the rest. Sliding was considered a natural degradation of abandoned keeps and citadels. There was no uprising. And this is, you know, obviously this is related to what we were talking about with, you know, the, the, uh, the dethroning of the of the American soldier from World War II, you know, his his shirt's coming a little untucked, his his boots are getting a little scuffed, you know, maybe his rifle's out of ammo and he's you know carrying a knife, maybe the shirt's open a little bit and he's just looking kind of kind of raggedy. Um, this is this is what demythologization is, and it there might be something to it because World War II was dirty. It didn't look like a propaganda piece. I'm assuming. In the meantime, like, demythologizers typically go too far and like to throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? So, like, a demythologizer in this in the World War II G.I. Joe situation might go from saying, well, they, they actually, you know, there were a lot of them were just, like, fat slobs, and there was a lot of people in the army who, who actually didn't want to be there, and, you know, there were, can you believe that there were, you know, like, um, Muslims fighting on, the, fighting on the sides of the Germans and all that stuff, like, demythologizing these categories that were built up within the myth. And sometimes they go too far and end up saying things like, well, World War II was, should never have happened. There were no bad guys in World War II. Everybody was a bad guy in World War II. Winston Churchill was actually worse than Hitler. Like, they really, really... Once you start this destruction of a myth, things get really, really weird. Um... 
and you, I'm sure all of you listening can, you, if you ask yourself honestly, if you ask yourself honestly, am I seeing anything like this happening today? Of course, of course, it's everywhere. It's, it's, a, it's a historical revolution right now, and it's happened before, so don't panic if you're, if you're worried about it. These things tend to sort themselves out. Plus, William Tell didn't actually go anywhere. This is, this is the other part. Um, I'm going to leave this out because this, uh, this is a little bit spiteful. I was not happy working on this episode. So, just to reiterate, in our big brain society of today, we think to ourselves, obviously demythologization is good. It's good for us to separate legend from myth and dispel any nonsense about men shooting apples off of their sons' heads. Um, we sort of like this thing, and it's at least considered uh, a considerable portion of the world population does. We're really easily attracted to those actually stories. You know, the ones like, well, actually, Balto never existed, or actually, Pocahontas never fell in love with John Smith. And actually, 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 George Washington was a Freemason working for the British, and actually, he was the 13th president of the United States, not the first. And actually, Abraham Lincoln was, you know, such and such. And we love actually stuff because all it is is it, it's a twist in the story. You know, you can see this this in, uh, the, you know, the movie that just came out, Cruella. When did you ever think a puppy-killing maniac would be the hero of a movie and not the villain? Well, that's an actually and uh, it's it's definitely a cultural meme, and it it's come again before. I mean, um, yeah, it's a neat trick, but it's sort of a one-trick pony, and it's called inversion. And it's it's good when you're trying to essentially make, you know, get get uh, two uses out of the same the same piece of material, like uh, they, like the Bizarro world in Marvel, right? So. Uh, um, you know, where Superman's the bad guy. We just saw this with the boys or whatever. Um, you know, again, Cruella's the good guy. Like, these are these are called inversions, and it's basically a scam where instead of being creative and coming up with something new, which, depending on what you believe, might not actually be possible, but you simply just reverse the, the factors. You know, instead of a one, it's a negative one. That's it. So anyway, dispelling a belief you just took for granted your whole life uh, is automatically interesting, sometimes infuriating. Um, but I got the same feeling of interest, intense interest when I learned uh, there were people who, you know, like, like Howdy, for example, who have this completely different understanding of how history works. It's like I can't look away. Why? I, I don't know. But uh, it's just interesting because it's different. It's almost like uh, it's almost like certain people uh, enjoy the chase, and when there's no chase, they don't know what to do. You know, like the dog chasing the car. When you finally get a handle on history, and you're like, "Wow, I think I actually understand where we came from, where all this where all this came from," and then once you're there, you kind of rest for about ten minutes, and you're like, "But what if? What if it was all wrong? Right?" And that's, that's the difference between history and historiography. Uh, and this, this, is, this, this is what good narrative can do, whether it's true or not. Like, people will fiercely defend William Tell monuments when other people want them taken down. That's happened. And that's happened for decades, people. Just one side effectively believes that William Tell was real. Um, they see him as a national hero. And the other side effectively believes that William Tell was a myth, should be gotten rid of. Um, and there, there are all kinds of insane reasons people have for disliking William Tell, but, you know, you can hook it on to almost anything. William Tell is a, 
He's a, he refuses to bow down. And it looks like more and more these days people hate people who won't bow down. Um, it's very interesting. You know, why won't they do what we're doing? Um, and again, it's one of those situations where you might think you know what I'm talking about, but it's, it's a lot of different things. You know, when you, know, you go to a party, right, and everyone's drinking, and you go, not for me, I'm sober. Isn't that awkward? <laughs> kind of ruins the fun, doesn't it? Sometimes. I mean, if, if you're a bunch of people who just effectively depend on alcohol to have a good time, if you're the one guy who's a teetotaler, you know, you can get made fun of, called a wimp, um, you know, all, all that kind of stuff, and you feel effectively left out. And unless you stick to your guns, even if you do stick to your guns, you're still going to run into some problems, right? So what we're talking about here is belief. And people hold on to beliefs really strongly, especially when they have some personal stake in the matter. And both sides have their reasons for believing what they believed uh, about William Tell. The demythologizers effectively proved in the 60s that no uprising happened in the 1300s. Therefore, William Tell was just a legend. And the people who held on tightly to their beloved folk hero were insulted by this idea, but weren't sure what to do. Because the research was in, wasn't it? Like, now we had settled facts. Like, we had real historical people going out and being like, yeah, the sliding never happened, the castles just fell apart, you know. The people didn't rise up and do something. The, they, the, the Reeves just lost control and lost all their people and therefore lost all their money and then had to leave their castles. Um, so, yeah, the demythologizers were kind of winning in the 60s. Because believing that peasantry inspired by this story had actually gone and some, done something, that was crazy, Right? Right, we now had the, the the very smart people with PhDs who came in and said that this was a this never happened. It was it was just it was all a pipe dream. Yeah. Um. Hmm. I am out of things to drink and I'm getting really thirsty. Let me let me go a little bit further and then I'll I'll take a break here and, and grab something to sip. Actually, no, this is a great place to this is a great place to pause. Let's just pause here. Pausing. All right. Just went on a little run there. It was a little darker than I realized. I really needed to put those birds in. <laughs> I have returned with a beverage. Another Soleil flavored sparkling water beverage with other natural flavors. This time I chose the peach edition. As I'm doing this, I realize how convenient it is that I can just pause this without having to Worry about resyncing the audio later with somebody else. I think this is why I'm going to do more of these on my own. If this works out, if you guys like this experiment. <laughs> All right, where were we? Let's see here. Ah, yes, we were talking about. I was getting I was getting tripped up because my brain broke again about the demythologizers and how they were essentially eliminating a cultural. Um, folk tale, a folk hero, um, by trying to find the real truth about the, the slighting of the Reeves' castles. Um, there's, a, there's a problem with demythologization, all right? And it's, I mean, there's obviously, like, it's based in probably noble intentions. You want to find out what really happened, right? You want to, you want to get rid of all the nonsense, and we just want to know the facts about what happened, and you know, these dreamy stories about, like, a William Tell 
rising up and taking down the Reeves. You know, that sounds so unrealistic. Isn't it, doesn't it just sound more realistic that the castles fell apart themselves? I mean, don't giant stone castles with each piece laid by hand and cemented in place and that have lasted thousands of years, that they would just fall apart? Isn't that, isn't that what happened to the pyramids? Didn't the pyramids just fall apart? Aren't the, isn't the Mayan architecture just a rock on the ground now? Well, you see. <laughs> so being cynical and demythologizing isn't, by its own virtue, uh, closer to finding the truth about things. And finding the truth about things, especially about history, is almost literally impossible with the technology we have now. It's possible in the far-off crazy future we'll invent something like time travel or scrying where we can look directly into the past, you know. I could see that I could see that being possible at some point and when we reach that point it's time to shut the whole thing down and start start again from rock and fire because I don't know where you go from there. So the demythologize <laughs> that's completely crazy. <laughs> Sorry, I'm using my imagination. <laughs> so within decades of these demythologizers announcing that Switzerland's culture was cancelled, um there was a ton of evidence coming out with people who were pushing back. They found that these castles and forts had been likely taken down by rebels sometime in the 14th century. That the so-called demythologizers were wrong. And embarrassingly, they were really wrong because they were all literally looking at the wrong castles. <laughs> so, hear me out on this. If you lived in Switzerland any time before the 1960s, you probably believe that William Tell was a real son of Switzerland who did amazing things and saved the Swiss from, you know, the Alp people from the, the evil Reeves and tax collectors. That would make you, how would that make you feel if you, if you believe that one of your guys had stood up to tyranny, just one man alone, and shot the apple and then killed the, uh, the bad Reeve and then led the revolt that freed Switzerland forever? How would that make you feel about your past, your country, your people, your tribe? Your, um, your story, like your personal story, you'd have pride in it. People like William Tell helped you to love your country and helped you to love people around you. Obviously, like I said earlier, this can be used for good or ill, just like the horse vessel lead, all right? Don't miss what I'm saying here on this. Cultural folk heroes give people something to believe in, and when you take that away... They are very, very resistant. Um, you know, especially when someone's been, like, almost... When somebody's been in the cultural grain for years. Like, for example, look how, um... Look how, uh... You, you know, you might respond if I say... Like, uh, you're, I don't know what... I don't know what you people like. I, I'm trying to think of something universal that, that people like. Like, uh... Fuck, everybody has a reason to hate everybody these days. So it's really hard, isn't it? <laughs> it's really hard, isn't it? If I, say, if I say, yes, the Founding Fathers people go, I hate the Founding Fathers. Okay, okay, well. Um, uh, uh, Jesus, well, I hate Jesus. Well, it's, oh my God, can nothing satisfy you? <laughs> you know what I mean? So um, I'm having imaginary conversations in my head again. That's going to happen when I do these um, as a lone, a lone, uh, uh, flying solo, that's what I'm trying to say. 
I was about to say a lone gunman. <laughs> oh boy. Um, so yes, cultural icons help you fall in love with something. You know, you can't have Black Widow without Black Widow. You can't have Iron Man without Iron Man. And you can't have Star Wars without Luke Skywalker. You can try and you will fail. Um, these are... Why, why these work, that's a whole other thing. Um, stories are way deeper than you know, probably. Um, we're talking like, well... There's a reason William Tell got into a storm in the middle of a lake, and Jesus got into a storm in the middle of a lake. And there's a reason why everyone bowed before the golden statue in the Bible, and everyone bowed before the hat in William Tell. Um, it's not because they're stealing from each other, it's because they're archetypal stories. They're built into your hardware. But that's a whole other thing, and if you want to get into that, I recommend Carl Jung. And not Freud who simplified the whole thing. <laughs> Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Is it really? Is it Freud? <laughs> I love talking about This is really fun for me. I hope you're all enjoying yourself. And now that I've wet my whistle again, this is where my brain broke. Again. So, if you believe if you believed in William Tell, you had a little you had a little pride about it. You know, hey, he's one of your boys. You know, you're Swiss, he's Swiss, right? You could take a little credit for that. But when you get demythologized, you lose a little of that. You're like, "Oh, wow, what else is wrong? What else do I believe that's wrong?" You kind of start you can get to a place where you believe that there are no more heroes, none at all. There never were, and everything in your past and your history and everything about you is a dumb lie. Oh, and you're dumb for having believed it. Right? Like, you stupid idiot. You believe that, you know, Christopher Columbus was the first person to ever land in America. Well, the Vikings did it first. And, and then there were the, the uh, you know, the indigenous people who walked across the, the uh, archipelago or whatever the fuck up there in the, the peninsula. Whatever the hell the, up there, that tail that Alaska has that used to be above the water. Like, there's a lot of people who believe that. Well, before that, there were just the animals. And before that, there were just the rocks. Why do you hate rocks? It's solipsism. It just sinks and sinks and sinks. So when you're demythologizing your history and the evidence is mounting that William Tell was fake, and it's also mounting that William Tell was real, after a while you're like, well, which is it? <laughs> what are you supposed to believe? Was, was everything a dumb lie? Is nothing true? And this is the chaos of, of, uh, of demythologization. It's like it, when you look into the abyss, it's, it looks back into you. And not only are you culturally lost without the legends of the past, you're wondering what the hell actually happened. Did William Tell exist? Did he not exist? What is going on? Like, so what am I supposed to believe? You know, you feel this, you feel this frustration. You're like, well, so this is, and this is where I was, because when I realized this was true of William Tell, I realized it was true of almost every historical figure we've covered on the show. It's like, yeah, there's evidence that that was real, but was it? I mean, was that guy real? Like, everyone believed that Horst Vessel was, you know, a good boy who died for his country. What? Well, he was a National Socialist. Well, well, all National Socialists are bad, so he couldn't have been good. Okay, so, but he was killed by communists, and we don't like those guys either, so was he good or was he bad? And It's binary thinking. That's, that's all it is. And that's where your brain's going to, you know, blue screen a death on you if you're thinking in straight binary terms. You have to use that excellent little thing you were born with, probably, called an imagination, and try to come up with something that helps everything sort of not necessarily blend together, but make sense of it, right? 
And when you see people using their imagination about history, you get things like ancient aliens, or you get like, Hitler only had one testicle, and you get like, well, Stalin killed 30 billion people, and we just don't know about it, and you get nonsense like, uh, like, um, oh, I don't know, pick a thing. And the funny thing about it is when you realize that these paradigms that we have about history, just because they seem more sensible, more, more logical, more in, in line with the mainstream, we think that that automatically gives them more credence. But when you're in a, a cultural revolution like the world is in today, it gets to a point where you don't, you just don't know. You just don't, you just don't know what's real. And so you start to realize that you read in a book somewhere that um, Winston Churchill was a good dude, and you read in a book somewhere that Winston Churchill was a bad dude, but you also read in a book somewhere that Atlantis was totally a real place. And then you realize that all of that information was gleaned in the same way you read it in a book somewhere. And then you start applying that to other stuff that you think you know. Well, I have good news. I have good news because if you take that to its logical end, you will go crazy. Sort of like I did last year. I, I It's funny, I, I, I had to get through this in a sense where I had to understand that history itself is highly suspicious, um, even if it is documented. You know, the way we remember things, the way human beings remember things and the way we record them, it's impossible, impossible to get every little detail right. And it's impossible to be in there without bias, which is why, you know, everyone talks about like science is objective. It's not. History is objective. It's not. Obviously, it's not. You're, you're stuck in a place where you have to know. You have to know whether William Tell was real or not. And, well, it's just, it's going to get a little weirder here. So let's talk a little bit, a bit about memes. We mentioned meme magic in our interview with, uh, with um, Joshua. And it's worth talking about it because it is magic. It's, it's something like magic. Um, and you can call it whatever you want. I don't want to hear a word about the damn frog. Meme magic is real. Um, so what is a meme? Well, according to Richard Dawkins, who is not in favor right now, <laughs> uh, who popularized the word, a meme is something like a reflective action to signal agreement with another person or group of people. A meme is anything that enforces an individual's identity within a group. Let me take a sip. For example, and this is an example that I, I I wrote quite a while ago. So if it doesn't if it doesn't work, <laughs> please forgive me. This is all an experiment after all. So the chain emails you get from your beloved grandparents about how Donald Trump was actually the greatest president the world had ever seen, or the emails you got about how Obama was actually the greatest president president the world has ever seen, or either one of them was actually the Antichrist, like shit like that. You know what I'm talking about. Because we all get those. Um, they're a strange cultural phenomenon, but let's get not, not get hung up on that. Those emails appear to contain information, such as how Obama secretly teamed up with the Pope to clone Hitler. It's amazingly crazy. Um, but believe it or not, that information is only the hook. Um, the information doesn't matter if it's true. Because there's, there's the fact that you're getting the email is information. Um, whether or not Obama did clone Hitler with the Pope, um, it's completely irrelevant to the purpose of the message outside of making you look at the email. 
The email could be about anything, um, but it's just not the point. The emails from your grandparents are signals from your grandparents, signals that say, don't forget about me, or I love you, or I think you'll like this, or maybe if you just saw this, you'd think differently. Um, it's sad, um, but it's, it's true. The email is, don't forget about me. Um, <sighs> mimetic behavior like that, this is kind of sad, I guess. Um, but that's, that is a mimetic behavior. Why do we all get that? Why do we all get those emails? It's because it's a paradigm. Um, older people don't want to be forgotten about or they want to remind people that they love them and it's an easy way to do it or, or they want to teach their kids something or something like that. That's why those forwards are always coming in. Um, because it's a paradigm. It's real. It's, it's, a, it's a... You know, it's, it's mimetic behavior. And mimetic behavior is sort of what keeps society moving as a group. You know, you're, you're always going to have people who, who just go along to get along. And, you know, things like cultural heroes and that sort of thing, these are memes. Like, William Tell might have been a meme, but it was a strong enough meme that it could get people moving to slight some castles. Um, other, other examples of memes is like a country's flag, a pledge, um, a hand over your heart when you're singing the national anthem. This is, these are memes. We don't do these things anymore, um, typically in America, at least not pop popularly. I mean, you go to a, the Indy 500, everyone's got their hand over their heart, their hat off their head, everyone's singing the anthem. But the, the man, when I was a kid, the energy was different. Everybody really believed it. And now it's something like a, a, a resist, a cry of resistance. That's how it feels now. It's like, I'm a defiant patriot still singing the anthem. It wasn't like that when I was a kid. When I was a kid, everyone there was, like, thrilled. Couldn't believe how good we had it, you know? You'd see people crying over the anthem, and it's not even that good of a song. But it was real, and it was a part of us. And when... When you realize that a, a culture is going through the destruction of its memes, which is what, you know, it seems like the whole fucking world's doing right now. Um, it can be painful. And a lot of people who are part of that, you know, that demythologizer group almost feel joy seeing people sad that they're disappointed in their country for the first time. You know? And I can relate to that because I used to be like that, you know? But, um, I don't want to get too dark here, but we all have mimetic groups. It's part of being in a human society. Um, mimetic behavior is the most natural thing in the world. The thing about it is like, man, I'm getting really tripped up here because my stomach's starting to hurt. Please forgive me. I did run all the way over there. And for some reason that didn't sit well with the pizza I just ate. <laughs> um, in a world like this, where we don't have our William Tells, where, where all of our toys are being taken away, um, where nothing is fun and everything, is, everything sucks and we're constantly feeling sorry for ourselves and everything, this is a time when we get to do something really fun. 
and this is, I guess, the point I was at when I was writing this episode and why it went so off track, because I was having a little cultural revolution in my brain while I was working on it. The cool thing we can do now is we can consciously and carefully choose our heroes and choose our memes. <laughs> um, right now, if you're lacking an identity, if you don't know what to believe anymore, if you don't think uh, you, you can go anywhere or believe in anything, you can. Um, there's a line from the movie uh, Hero starring Dustin Hoffman. Uh, it's about a guy who... Uh, he saves a bunch of people on a plane crash, but he's so covered in mud, um, nobody recognizes him afterward, and some other guy steps in to take credit for it. And he says he's trying to teach his son a lesson at the end of all of it after the confusion gets shaken out, um, where he says, "That's li all life is. Life is just one stack of bullshit on top of one, uh, on, on top of another, and you pick your layer, and that's your bullshit." <laughs> Uh, that's where it is. And so, you know, a lot of people will put their identity in hobbies or, or their, you know, what they watch or, or that sort of thing. And a lot of people just sort of get put into hobbies. They get put into things they're fans of by virtue of what they are. Like the gamer meme, for example, if you're a, you're a gamer, you're probably playing either Tarkov or Fortnite. And those are two completely different mimetic zones, but they're still under gamer, right? Now, these are, this is important because you have to look at your memes, your narrative, the story you're telling about yourself, the story you're telling about the world you live in, and analyze it. it if, if your story, say, is like the demythologizer, you want to crack through all the bullshit, like the Nietzschean sledgehammer, so to speak, where you're just like, nope, that's not true, nope, that's not true, nope, that's not true, that's not real, and you're just, you want to do that? I mean, you'll go crazy. You will absolutely go crazy, but you won't be wrong. Right? <laughs> you won't be wrong. It's like not like Nietzsche was actually all that wrong about dialism or solipsism. He was correct. A every layer of, you know, every layer of philosophy and religion that that dude cracked through in his, his writings, he was absolutely not wrong, but he was just an asshole. <laughs> right? So it's like it's like you go to a play and everyone there is like, uh, you know, enjoying Wicked or whatever, and then Nietzsche runs up on the stage and is like, "This is all fake," and everyone's like, "Yeah, but like we're enjoying being we're enjoying believing it's real for now." Well, if the theater's on fire, Nietzsche has a job. He's got to get up there on the stage and say, "It's just a show. Look away. The theater's on fire." That's a place for a Nietzsche, and maybe that's why he was so important in his time. But it's not always the play to go on around and, like, try to bash people over the head and be like, your William Tell story is fake. It's like, are they happy? Do they believe in themselves? Then the story's doing a good job. As long as it's not making people suicidal, for Pete's sake, stories are fake. But they're also not fake. That's the whole point. <laughs> That's the whole point. So good meme culture, like a William Tell, is good for everybody. Um, it's like a company. You know, you start up a company. What do you come up with? You come up with a mission statement and a list of values to use those as metrics for success. They're abstract. The mission statement is usually like, we want to serve our customer equitably and and carefully, and we want to make everyone... We aim to please, like that sort of thing. Like, it's not a bad thing, you know? 
Um, encouraging positive behavior like this is pretty much the most important th thing a corporate entity can do. And by a corporate entity, I mean a country, I mean a company, I mean a family. Like, you know, um, for example, the, the Romans used to have uh, household gods, right? They would have a, uh, a little, they, they called them, what did they call them? I forget. I used to know the Latin. It doesn't really matter. George should be here for this, but he's busy with his new job. Um, they had their household gods, and they were like, what defined that family? You know, um, House Gaius, you know, had a goddess on the mantle or whatever who made sure everybody knew when they came in the house they were all about a good time or all about good conversation or, or jokes or that sort of thing. Um, household gods were an extremely important part of, um, you know, Roman culture, but they were also a part of lots of cultures. Lots of cultures had household gods. Um, you know, you would choose in, in some cultures, you would choose what, how, what god or goddess your house was under. Um, so like, you know, I, I know I have friends who like their house might as well be blessed by a spirit of joy. And that's their household god. You go there, you feel relaxed and safe, and it's fun, and it's good. And it's because the people there believe that this is a place to rest and recharge and cut loose. And that's it. And then there's other houses that might as well be the house of learning. This is the house of knowledge. You go there to learn. You know, when I was homeschooled, we would do things called co-ops. You go there at people's houses and take classes, that sort of thing. And that, ho that was a house of learning, right? So you imbue something with the spirit. and so. William Tell, you might be wondering what this has to do with William Tell, and this is why I had to cancel the episode, was because I kept going on these tangents. But since this is an experiment, and I hope you're enjoying yourself, um, I'm hoping this all makes more sense, because it took me almost two years to get this boiled down into something that made sense, because when it was happening to me, I thought I was going legitimately crazy. So remember when we were talking about the White Book of Sarnen way back in the beginning there? Well, the White Book is what's called a historiographical document. Contained in its pages are the foundational legends of Switzerland, including the tale of a badass family man tyrant killer named William Tell. Now I ask you, what if William Tell had been mentioned in that book only briefly and there were no details about his life at all except that he had existed? It would probably be like, oh, there was this guy named William Tell moving on. It would be easier to accept that William Tell was actually real if all you had was his name, but you would never remember him. You know, if you just had a name, a birth date, and a death date, you'd be like, yeah, that was probably a guy somewhere. But you don't remember him. We know that the legendary shooting apple, apple shooting episode is not native to William Tell's story, too. There's a, there's a page on Wikipedia called Shooting an Apple Off of One Son's Head. Uh, go look it up. Shooting an Apple Off One Son's Head. Uh, because there's a plethora of legends predating William Tell about that exact thing. So, if the William Tell apple-blasting story was fake, why was it put in the book to begin with? Was it stolen? Was it copied? Or is it just a natural phenomenon? <laughs> and I made some answers on that. One, it makes it stick in your mind. Um, I say William Tell, you think apple blasting. Bam. If the if he didn't have that story attached to him, he would be irrelevant and snapped away by Father Time. Two, the story emphasizes tell, uh, Tell's character as opposed to just his deeds. It's not just a list of facts about history. It's an example of good Swiss character, right? 
sort of like the Bible. It's just one example after another of different kinds of people you're going to meet in your life. You may think the book is stupid, but you're in it. <laughs> sort of like William Tell, you're in that story somewhere. You just got to figure out which character you are. Are you one who knelt to the hat or are you one who stood up and said, "No." Or are you the are you the tyrant? I mean, which are you? Be honest with yourself. But here's the thing. Whether or not, as we've established, the apple blasting incident literally happened with the real William Tell or not, it absolutely doesn't actually matter one iota. And I know what you're thinking. But Aaron, if we didn't know our history objectively, how can we see our past objectively? Everything could made up, could be made up. And that is my point. History isn't a lie agreed upon. History is a meme. <laughs> oh, I got kind of angry writing this, I guess. In the case of William Tell, I say it doesn't matter if he actually exists. What matters is if you believe he exists. You can decide today to believe in our Lord and Savior, William Tell, and really believe that he shot that apple off his son's head and then killed a tyrant. You can do it right now. Just try it. And notice the difference when you do. If you believe there existed men who killed tyrants uh, for demanding humiliation and animal loyalty, you would believe that those men could still exist today. But if you didn't believe in our Lord William Tell, you only have one less example of a hero like that in your mind. You're easier to discourage because you have no reference to people who didn't kneel to a hat. And you are more prone to hopelessness. You feel adrift in a cold world with no purpose. Think about how many times people say they've been disappointed by their heroes. And nowadays, how many times they've been, they've been understood by the villains. I mean, the Cruella movie. Do I, have, do I have to explain why killing puppies is unforgivable? I don't care how quirky her little dance scene was with whatever, you know, pop song, whatever the heck was in the movie. I didn't see the movie, obviously. I don't care how quirky it is. She kills puppies. That's the character. Is it defensible? Of course it isn't. Can you come up with a bunch of reasons why a person would be driven to kill puppies for a fur coat? Sure, but it doesn't change the fact that she killed puppies. No matter how you... <laughs> there's, there's more than one way to skin a puppy, I say. Um, no matter how, how you sugarcoat it, you can't change that Cruella killed puppies. And her name's Cruella, for God's sake. <laughs> Milliam, uh, Milliam, William Tell, the Swiss meme, had a cultural effect that defined Switzerland for centuries. It fomented a revolt that caused real change, but it also sowed the seeds of a national character. The White Book may not have told a literal history of Switzerland, but that wasn't the point, nor was it the effect. The point was to give the Swiss, the Rutlischwur, the White Book, the Book of Swiss Memes, a Bible for what they ought to value as the Swiss, a, def a, <laughs> a definition of collective character. Perhaps it was a false, hist false history, but it was a damn good story. And though we don't know if William Tell was real or not, his spirit rings true. And that's the thing with legends and myths such as these. They tell us a fun tale about something intangible and just out of our grasp, but they give us ready-made answers to the problems of life. In the case of William Tell, the value of the story is to show that no matter how many people around you give up and bend the knee, you don't have to if you don't want to. Because William Tell is a hero meme, and hero memes give us hope. When we go to history classes while we're growing up, there's always something to complain about with any character from the past. 
We are told we can't like certain people because they did bad things and some good things. Uh, and that, but there, nobody's worthy of admiration. And I'm to the point where I say to hell with that. Focusing, I had this thought this week that people are stuck right now. And regardless of where you are, a lot of people are stuck focusing on failures. Ah, the America, America's a failed experiment. The West is a failed experiment. China's failing. Everything's failing. Oh my god, a failure. Another one. Oh, wow. Hell with that. Focusing on finding the faults or the lies in these stories, it's an exercise in futility. You're just being Nietzschean about the whole thing. There's a time to be Nietzsche, and there's a time to be William Tell. Focusing on what's real and true and believing on the good guys is important, especially if you're hopeless or depressed. If you choose your memes carefully, you can choose your fate. If you select your household god carefully, you can choose what your house will be. After all, remember the oath that William Tell said first in the Valley of Rutli. We want to be a single people of brethren, never to part in danger nor distress. We want to be free as our fathers were and rather die than live in slavery. We want to trust in the one highest God and never be afraid of human power. Now, if that doesn't imbue a tribe with every single necessary virtue to live in freedom, I don't know what will. And a tale like William Tell, as we see with data, might be true, might not be true, but what does it do to you when you believe it? The power of belief is one of the most important things you can harness within yourself. If you go into, for example, if you go into work and you say, this is going to be a bad week, it's probably going to be a bad week. But if you go into work and you say, this is going to be a challenge worth taking, and then you beat it, you were right. On top of conquering the challenge, you were right in predicting that you would, you would beat the challenge which feels pretty good, and that gives you a little bit of power. So anyway, long story short, that's the end of this experiment, pretty much. Um, I am sure you can see why this drove me crazy and still continues to, because it's still... It's in that realm of the ethereal, you know? You don't really know if it's... if it's true, but again, binary thinking. Maybe it's more important that people believe it's true. Maybe it's better for the world if people believe maybe not a pleasant lie, but an encouraging one. I mean, and there's I, I can hear people disagreeing with me, and I, I get it, but why do we watch inspirational movies, even though we know they're fake? Why do we read novels, even though we know they're made up? Why do we model ourselves off of characters we like, even though they're imaginary? Because the power of your belief and the power of you putting that mental energy towards something, even if it doesn't exist, that is true human power. Think about it. And this is why people in the, the hippy-dippy style movements are always talking about visualizations and affirmations. It's because it's real. It actually works. If you believe it does. Hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo. So now that we're, we're talking about meme magic and spooky magic territory, 
I think I'm probably going to wrap this up. I'm going to take another sip of this peach, though. This this is... I can taste Georgia with every sip. Speaking of Georgia, so Georgia... I'm talking to the can right now. So Georgia, <laughs> if you had to recommend one heroic tale for the listeners to check out, what would it be? Well, the can can't talk. But if I had to recommend one heroic tale for listeners to check out, it wouldn't be William Tell, because there's really not much to it. But, I don't know, I find, uh, I found Alexander Selkirk rather inspiring. I mean, that's a man who literally got thrown out of a slave system and ended up on an island and found more freedom in, in squalor than, <laughs> than uh, ever it within his, uh, within his you know, wage slave status as a sailor. Um, well, how's that, guys? That was my first, my first solo podcast, and I had no one to reel me in, so I went as far as I wanted to, and I just danced with the music of language. <laughs> I'm getting really, really stupid right now. I swear there's no booze in this. It's just straight flavored sparkling water beverage with other natural flavors. Um, and on that note, I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today. If you hate me, you're probably right. So consider funding the show by becoming a patron on Patreon.com. Or if Patreon is not your thing, drop me a little tip in Venmo. That's at WTADP. Don't miss it. I love getting tips. It's really, really fun. I don't get enough of them to, like, do super chats or whatever the fuck you call it, where you read it on the show. But if I did, I bet I, I bet I, I'm sure I would, couldn't wait to do it. I mean, I've done it a couple times. Come on. Our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. With all that being said, we'll close out and let the legendary sound of your hero's journey play you out. Mm -hmm.